Slither hither, weirdos and witches. On tonight's program, we have the one and only Sam Shadow. One of the things that's always fascinating, talking to artists that are within the occult realm, is mining where those confluences started. Sam is a wonderful musician, and I always wanted to get down and dirty about what came first, the music or the magic? I don't know. I started playing guitar when I was about 13 years old. Like, that's the age I wanted to start learning to play it, but I don't think I could actually play like a legit song until maybe I was 15. (laughs) You know, that's funny you mentioned that because I do think that there were certain things like I was musically influenced by that might have planted an early seed or an early interest in occultism because I would see like Jimmy Page with certain occult symbols on his pants or his jackets or whatever and I would think, oh, what is that? Or I would see... um, I don't know, maybe certain uh, bands like Tool that had a lot of occult things mixed into their artwork. And, you know, none of that stuff was ever addressed in their music necessarily. You know, whether you're talking Zeppelin or um, Tool or whoever it might be, but the imagery was always there and it was enough just to kind of spark a curiosity to say, um, well, I wonder what that is, or I wonder what they know that I don't, perhaps. (laughs) Yeah, I always wonder that, too, because we now know just how deep and thorough the rabbit hole goes with occultism and, you know, the likes of Led Zeppelin and, and, and 70s rock and roll and all of that. But I often wonder, too, if it was, you know, Station to Station or, or something like that from, you know, Bowie that really put me on my mind thinking into the confluence between music and magic, singing about the Kabbalah and Crowley and, you know, all of that. And I wonder, like, what what was the tipping point for you? What What got you into the books? When I was younger, maybe around that same age, maybe when I was about 15 or 16, every time I'd go to the mall with my mom, I would go in the bookstore. And I remember one week, every day she would go shopping and I would go into the bookstore and I would read the satanic Bible (laughs) because it was the only bookstore related type of, I don't know, like left-hand path or a magical text in there that really caught my eye. I didn't even know what left-hand path was yet. And I would read a little bit of that every single day. And um, I guess that was sort of my introduction to it. But of course my worldview on magic and spirituality changed a lot when I got older. Sam and I share a wonderful trajectory, both as musicians and as, well, practitioners. 
And it's always funny to notice that music usually came first. It must sing to an innate and primal part of us. But with all of those references littered in, when did it really click? When did you start messing around? Well, Sam didn't start hitting the books, as they say, until about 23 years old. There's that number again, skidoo. You know, it's weird. I think when I first started doing it, it was more or less a feeling of, oh, this is something I've always been curious about. And, um, you know, I guess maybe this is something I can read or learn about that might be fun or quirky. And little did I know when I actually started practicing the magic itself, uh, it really changed a lot of my worldviews. Like it became something very integrated and very important into my life, I think. Well, I didn't really do like any kind of ritual magic or um, occultism when I was a teenager. It wasn't until a good bit later on, but um, I don't know. I think it was, uh, even the, even now though, I really don't talk about it much around like my, my local friends and peers just because mm. none of them really share that same interest with it that uh, like you or I have. Mm-hmm. But um. I think it's one of those things where everything kind of has its place. And, yeah. um, uh, you know, it's kind of like, I know that I might have some really unconventional <laughs> spiritual beliefs to a lot of people. And I always, it always irks me whenever some Christian or whatever they might be, it doesn't have to be a Christian, starts moralizing to me and says, oh, well, this is the way the universe really works. And I never wanted to be that kind of person with occultism. <laughs> what cracked open the head with all of this stuff? What, what got you sailing with it? I don't know. I think what really made a believer out of me, or at least let me know that there's something greater than I currently understood, was uh, practicing sigil magic out of um, Lieber Null and Psychonaut. And I think that um, when I did that, in my mind, I was, I didn't think that magic was even real. Like I just kind of saw it as a creative thing to do. But when I actually did about five sigils at one day and charged them all at once, like I had a strong, I guess you could call it um, maybe an empathic physical sensation to it that really just kind of scared the shit out of me for a minute because Even, you know, the satanic Bible wouldn't have you believe, oh, um, magic's not real, it's all psychological, or um, even Lieber Null, which I was practicing at that moment, would say the same thing, that it's all psychological, but um, it, I don't know, I think it was sort of that weird empathic experience that gave, that it gave me, made me realize, oh shit, maybe there's something bigger I'm playing with that I don't quite understand. Maybe that's some kind of energy or spirit or whatever it could be. I don't know. And it kind of scared me a little bit and shook me up, made me question a lot of things. And um, after a while, I think I looked at myself and I realized, you know what? Um, Maybe I would be better off learning to embrace this instead of fighting against it. So I I realized, okay, so the weird feeling came from the sigil magic, right? 
So maybe I need to do another kind of magic to make the weird feeling go away. So I started Ooh. doing the LBRP every single day. And then a month or so, I started to feel a little bit more normal again. <laughs> and, so that's, um, that's interesting. It's like, you know, the you know, psycholo psychological trick of chaos magic, at least like Peter Carroll's idea, you know, a very uh, somatic kind of magic, not very preternatural in any way, but you have, uh, you had a preternatural experience with it. Right. And so your answer was to kind of deep dive more into the preternatural to kind of yeah, equalize. Yeah, exactly. What's fascinating here, and I absolutely adore this about Sam as a practitioner, is that they had a preternatural experience with more of the somatic and reality-driven aspects of magic, whether it was chaos magic or even Levian Satanism. Uh, these ideas that they were psychological tricks, usually, uh, absent of the supernatural and preternatural, and yet Sam had supernatural and preternatural events concerning them. So what does Sam do? Sam digs deeper into the preternatural aspects of other currents of magic. I think that, you know, some of the Golden Dawn stuff, at least at that time, because I, I was a good bit younger back then. It doesn't feel like it's been as long as it actually has. But, um, you know, I, I read, I was, that was a growing point in my life where I was practicing a lot of these things for the very first time. So I figured, okay, I might as well, you know, if this seems to be a classic, you know, kind of fundamental ritual that everybody knows, I better get on this and learn it. And I think that's where a lot of people start really. Um, they look at some of the Golden Dawn rituals or maybe even certain Wiccan rituals or whatever they're drawn to and kind of go off of those beginning building blocks. But yeah, you've definitely mixed and, and matched in a way. I think that's that's like a, uh, how do I say this? That's, that's a, a, a incendiary kind of idea, especially for somebody that's a little bit spooked with, <laughs> you know, the preternatural stuff to kind of dive deeper and work with it even when you're getting you know supernatural feelings and resonances from just like results quote-unquote based magic right you know? <laughs> what is what has given you the the haints as we call them in the south Ooh, <laughs> the haints yeah you mean just in terms of like um well, wow, that's funny because that is a word i don't think i've ever really heard outside of my hometown so that's <laughs> You mean just like uh, a feeling of you're not alone or a feeling of something other than yourself? Yeah, I always took it. You know, we always said like in my family, it was someone walking over your grave. So it was this weird idea of time being completely like flat. And I'm feeling a kind of resonance with somebody walking over the end of, you know, my biology. It just always seemed like the hate seemed very creepy to me in the way of like these are preternatural willies let me take this time to pause and give a urban dictionary definition of the word haint now the urban dictionary considers haint h-a-i-n-t as chiefly a southern u.s variant of haunt originally but the meaning has since morphed to mean more than a ghost 
can also mean a scary bitch or a mean person, usually a woman. Wait, that's not the right definition. Um, basically, haint is a southern way of saying a ghost, a haunt, a spirit, or the hair standing up on the back of your neck. Some would even confuse it as deja vu. I think um, really any time I ever do, I mean, whether it was a spell casting thing, like what happened with uh, the sigil magic thing when I was much younger, or whether it's an evocation or whatever it might be, I usually look for some kind of feeling like that. And that for me lets it, lets me know it's working. Um, I know that some people say they're clairvoyant or clairaudient and they see things or they hear things. I don't really get that at all. I'll be honest. I think for me, it's more of a feeling of things. And usually at that moment, um, you know, even if it's a strong feeling, I can usually tell if it's something that is of a good nature or if it's something that maybe it could hurt me type of thing. And, uh, you know, I think that's very important too, but that's, that's kind of the telltale sign I look for now to even know, is this ritual working? And you usually, if I don't feel that feeling, I start to feel like, well, maybe this ritual is bullshit. <laughs> maybe it's, it's right. not going to do anything at all. Or, um, I like that. It's very earthy that to have the, you know, I don't need to just trust the feeling. Basically. It's like, I don't need to be concerned with the, you know, presupposed idea of the, you know, quote unquote beings I'm working with. It's like, I'm going to open myself to them. I know, obviously by feel if they're good or bad, or if they're even anything at all. I wanted to talk about this too with Paimon, you know, Mm -hmm. who has been in our popular culture recently because of the film Hereditary. And that sigil has been (laughs) like everywhere (laughs) across the, uh, hearts and minds of disturbed children across this great nation uh, because of that film. But during that time, and it wasn't because of hereditary, but I think you were, you were kind of outspoken and about doing some magic with Paimon. Yeah. And I just love this idea that even with Sam's shadow, like the shadow self of, you know, working with these things that are, you know, maybe in, in like occult groups to be very, not evil, but nefarious or, or, or worrisome. So what, what brought you to kind of working with the darker side of stuff? He, here's the thing, like, I think that um, Goetia is kind of a crapshoot in a way. I think that because it's a grimoire with 72 spirits, and there's, honestly, I'll just say right off the cuff, 72 spirits is more than I personally need in my life. <laughs> <laughs> But, uh, yeah. you know, there's definitely some spirits in there that I really like. And, uh, you know, even in comparison, the uh, there's other grimoires that make the Goetia or the selection of spirits in the Goetia look very small by comparison. Like there's some names in there I would never, ever call upon. There's some that I've, I'm definitely either curious about. And then there's some that I work with that I like very much. I think Paimon is a little misunderstood because of hereditary. I think that for me, at least like I feel a very peaceful or at least calm kind of energy from him. Like I don't feel anything necessarily malevolent from him, but at the same time, it's like to each their own. And I think that, um, 
you know, I, I've, I hesitate to give advice about summoning things from the Goetia anymore for the simple fact that there have been times where I worked with a spirit like that and I would say, oh yeah, I like this spirit, he's really good, blah, 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 and somebody else will work with that same spirit and be like, oh, that's horrible, you shouldn't. <laughs> yeah. That's even happened to me before. I, I remember there was one very specific uh, demon from the Goetia that worked with healing that, um, and I'll tell you right off the cuff, it wasn't Marboss. I actually like him very much. There's another one that I'm not going to say the name of that works with healing that I had a horrible experience with, but, um, you know, and I would never work with them again, but. Well, explain know. to me, yeah, what these, what these interactions or these communions are with them. How are they interacting with your somatic reality where you can tell if this is good or bad? I think with something bad, it's just, it's almost like a panic attack turned up to 10. Just mm. a very physically uncomfortable feeling. And I mean, I won't go into all the details of it just for, you know, my own privacy sake. Sure, I would yeah. get a lot of negative thoughts or intrusive thoughts that just don't feel natural. A lot of nightmares, just not being able to sleep properly or eat properly. And um, it really fucked with me for about a couple of weeks until I got a good cleansing and took it off. But yeah, that was rough. But the, I guess where I was going with that is even though I had that horrible experience, um, you know, I've known a lot of other people that like that spirit very much. So who am I to say, you know, right? because I don't like him doesn't mean he's all bad. Maybe he just doesn't like me. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that, that's what I was going to say. Sometimes, you know, you just don't get along. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> One thing that has always interested me, especially with grimoire magicians, is how one communes with the spirits or the otherworldly haunts that they are invoking or evoking. And invocation, allowing an otherworldly entity into your self to merge with your super self, what does that look like? What is that communion, Sam? Wow, that's a really tricky question. I don't even know if I can put it into words necessarily. I think a possession, it's not really like we would see in movies, of course, like The Exorcist right. or anything like that, but I do think it's fully flinging yourself. You know, in a way, I think anything that's an invocation is very similar to a possession right. because you're bringing in those aspects of whatever it is you're calling on into yourself. So you embody some of that personality or whatever it might be. Um, maybe, and it could be anything, you know, it could be a material goal or it could be something of a higher nature, like um, your higher self, perhaps. Right. You know, somebody might um, call on, you know, in Satanism, you might call on um, Satan or invoke Satan just to raise, uh, you know, yourself. I mean, not yeah. just... Satan isn't quote unquote real, but to just uh, worship or embrace all the aspects that make you, you, or it could be anything else. It could the be a super um, self. Yeah. Let's say you're working with Paimon. Uh, Paimon's really good for money and prosperity, but he's also good for, um, he can either sway somebody in favor of you or he can sway people against you. So he has a kind of control over reputation. You can mm. say, so if you were invoking Paimon, 
um, to bring those elements into you, you know, you might have a certain flair or a certain aspect about your personality that makes people more drawn to you or more interested in you for whatever reason. And that's just one of many, many, many examples. Now, I've had the pleasure of knowing Sam for just a short time, but getting to know them pretty deeply and personally in a magical sense. And one thing we always kind of discuss are the ramifications of hexing and cursing. Now, it was only right that I dig a little deeper into what they think about certain hexes, curses, and distributing constructs to pervade or disrupt another person's will or intent, as unfortunately Sam has been on the receiving end of. It, you know, that's funny you mention that because even though I do like a lot of left-hand path stuff, I've never really been big on that. I was going to say, I don't think you would ever be the person to pull something like that. No, <laughs> if I did, it would be because somebody did. I mean, there have even been times where I felt like somebody cursed me and I, I didn't even attack them back. I would just either try and take it off or, you know, find a way to, in my Belial video I posted recently, I even speak of a situation a few years ago uh, that happened with something like that. And um, I can be really forgiving. I think if I do put a curse on somebody, they'd have to do something like really, 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 really bad. Yeah. Um, like something that maybe endangered me or my family, perhaps. But uh, it's, um, yeah, it's, it's a tough thing. I think that um, it's negative energy. I think half of a curse can be very psychological. I think that half of the battle of the curse is believing in the curse so if you surrender you know if you think you got cursed, you're cursed. Is, yeah <laughs> yeah you you pretty much have given your your will away um in that kind of way but um i think energy wise uh, maybe it really depends on what the curse is because that could be a lot of different things but i think energy wise most curses a person might run into or just something of negative thoughts or negative feelings. Like I know some people that say when they, if they've been cursed by an enemy, quote unquote, they just feel kind of sad for a while or maybe they're very anxious or whatever it might be. But, um, usually you can take that off. Um, I mean, of course there are horror stories that you hear online about this happened and that happened. You can, take that with a grain of salt, not trying to diminish anybody, uh, anybody's experiences. Uh, but I've never paid you as somebody that would, you know, seek to alter anybody else's will in that sort of way. And that's what kind of brings us back around, I think, into one of the biggest themes of this podcast. And that is, mental health and metaphysics, especially that of a practicing magician and artist. And as someone that's suffered and has excelled at both at different times, I've always been interested to see what the trajectory is like with every person I talk to on this podcast within mental health, especially 
if you think back to our talk about the haints and the preternatural experiences, and of Sam having panic attacks with bad communions to dark spirits. I mean, I've never actually been diagnosed with anything by a doctor, but I mean, yeah, even well before I ever um, practiced magic, I think that I've always had, like, I, I don't know, when I was younger, we'll say I did a lot of partying, and um, when I kind of quit doing that partying and uh, experimenting with a lot of substances and things, I did have a lot of anxiety for a while. But um, I think that was also kind of my transition when I quit that phase of my life. I got more, less interested in substances and things, and more interested in the magic and books and things like that. And I realized, oh, I can change my states of consciousness um, through, you know, a set or a setting or a certain ritual of actions. Um, and, and even from his own atheistic perspective, I think Anton LaVey kind of points that out in a way in his book, but it's, um, I, I, I think that there have definitely been benefits of it for me. I think that it's helped make me more outspoken, more extroverted, maybe a little bit more confident than I used to be. And, uh, maybe that's a good thing because if I wasn't all of those things now um I, there would have been a lot of opportunities that I would have passed up and there are a lot of opportunities in the past that I did pass up just cuz I was my priorities were out of line and I thought oh maybe I can't do this or I can't do that but magic um just the effect of it it had how it's kind of integrated into my life not even the rituals themselves just the effects of the rituals uh, mm think played a big part in helping me overcome some of that stuff it's like a universal centering in a way do you think okay. that's that's because it makes you a bit more small in the scheme of things or is it more because things are heightened in the scheme of things or both i guess i think that um it's a dynamic between the two mm -hmm. i think that it can be um a very kind of humbling experience when you realize when you kind of have that I, I think everybody has at some point in their life whether you practice magic or not that experience where you feel like a grain of sand in a sandbox with a billion other grains of sand and there's almost a feeling of helplessness or insignificance but then you realize that that one specific grain of sand might be one among billions but it's very unique unto itself and maybe that grain of sand has something to offer that maybe certain other grains of sands don't have to offer or contribute in their own way. And that's where the kind of beauty of it is. Um, I think that whenever you look at it like that, you, um, it, it's almost like the psychedelic ego death. <laughs> right. I compare it to that all the time. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Just like, yeah. Muting, muting that, uh, ornery part of yourself you know right it makes you more humble and it makes you appreciate people better i think uh, it's, yeah. it's finding the resolve yeah i absolutely adore that um, a big part of me and the reason why uh there's this crusade with media and magic and being open about this is the wonderful community that i have been privileged to be garnered with even just in the past couple of months uh, especially during all this quarantine thing and i often wonder from sam 
did the music, did the media allow them a bigger voice to usher in more of a community and interest within the occult? You know what? I don't, I never saw it that way, but maybe I was maybe like, I, I think that a big part of it, at least the last few years or so, the reason I might've not posted as much stuff as I'd like to was really more laziness. And I'll, I'll fully admit to that, but, um, I don't know. Whenever I hit 2020 before everything went to shit halfway through the year, I was thinking, this is my year. This is, this is the year to post a bunch of stuff and just try and really put things out. And, uh, well, then you did this because now you have all the time in the world to do that. <laughs> Magic works, everyone. Yeah. <laughs> I think my anxiety has been really, really bad. Um, and I don't even attribute that to anything magically. I think that, and, but I remind myself, you know, the whole world kind of feels this way right now because nobody in the history of the world has ever dealt with anything like this. Mm -hmm. Um, but the most inspiring thing I think I've seen lately is just, um, even if it's not something I'm doing, you know, just the amount of stuff that's been released since quarantine happened and the amount of, um, you know, I guess you could say interconnectivity between online communities and people using zoom some for, excuse me, very first time, you know, that that's what inspires me. That's what makes me say, um, okay, you know, so there is something else to do other than lay here and <laughs> feel like the apocalypse is happening. <laughs> yeah, Ivy and I've often said that, and really like when it came to you know the podcast, it just morphed into this more combustible live thing, live streams and, and, and hangouts and chats. And I always really appreciated that because I'm a bit of a control freak. You know, I, I just have always been very centered around being poised, feel like I'm communicating at the best of my abilities. and this quarantine allowed me just to kind of cut loose and just be flubbed and weird and online and have fun and share a couple of drinks with people from across the world. If that was what we got out of this, I think it was worth it. Yeah. Oh, totally. No, I like, totally feel the same way. It's, um, I think that uh, what you did with the uh, Saturday sideshow was awesome. And uh, it's a, uh, I, it, that was like a really special thing for everybody to kind of be able to come together and work collectively and, you know, just bring a smile in a very dark time. Just quickly, for those listeners that do not subscribe to Pragmagic on YouTube or our friend Sayroth the Mage on YouTube or Sam, practically anyone on YouTube, on April 18th, we had a variety show at the height of quarantine. And we had everyone from Lord Josh, Sam, Niche, uh, Michelle Embry, C.W. Chanter, uh, just off the top of my head, hosted on Sirath the Mage's channel. And I got to disc jockey it a bit and, and co-host. And everyone made something completely unique and brilliant as far as music, video, uh, magical ritual. And we all premiered them together on a major live stream. And it was an absolute success and definitely the highlight of my quarantine. I'll add a link in the show notes. Please check it out. It's a lot of fun. We got sloppy. It was great. Back to the show. And I think it even inspired other people like CW and Kelly wanting to do their thing now. And Right. 
um, you know, it's, it's cool to just see our friends come together and interact on that kind of level. It's a great thing I thought about us, why, like, I really loved ours, even if it was sloppy or weird, was that it was all art-based. Everybody just had something to share that was completely unique and custom-made for the show. It was great. It was so much fun. It took, like, a couple of weeks to kind of detox from it, you know? <laughs> yeah, no, for sure. I think the buildup of it was so great that once it was over, it was, ah, time to decompress. <laughs> and it's, it's so funny because, like, yeah, it's there forever. And I think this is a weird thing about moving into this venture of digital media, specifically with live streaming and all of this. It feels combustible. It feels like you're just going to forget it because nothing was ever too scripted or whatever. But it's there forever now. I know what you mean about how it just kind of went by. I think there, it's because there was just so much activity happening all at once that it kind of seemed like a blur, but um, at least it's here forever now and uh, people can go back and restream it. We can go back and restream it and watch it. <laughs> I, I feel like I need to be more dexterous when I express things or I need to, you know, be a little bit more lucid when it comes to serious talks and stuff. So I see these last three months of quarantine or the last month or so of quarantine as like as a very sloppy boot camp for all of that, you know? <laughs> oh, totally. But you kind of need to go through that for a while just to find your legs. Yeah. When did it really start moving that you were a part of this like kind of bigger ensemble? I think that um, if you really, really want to go back to the beginning of it, our friend Theophilus... Powell. Of I course. That yeah, Robert Powell. Yeah. Yes, Robert Powell, me and him, and another friend of ours named RC had a podcast. And um, it, it's funny, I wonder if he remembers this. At the time, he was trying to get me to start making YouTube videos. And I said to him, literally, um, I wouldn't make a YouTube video for a million dollars. Because I just never really felt comfortable about talking about magic on camera for the world to see because I don't know I guess the only thing that really led me to actually doing it was um, sort of the will to share certain little things that maybe three or four years ago you didn't really see that many videos on it you didn't see that many videos on evocation or radionics or even voodoo um, but now it's like all those subjects are covered tenfold <laughs> there's almost been a re-interest in it in the last five years. So now um, I guess my original purpose for coming to YouTube was to try and spread that kind of knowledge without trying to sell people a video course or a book for hundreds <laughs> of dollars, kind of just a labor of love because that purpose doesn't really exist for me anymore. I'm happy to say other people have kind of covered that ground for me in a way. To answer the question, how I got in that, into this whole community, uh, Reemsey, was our first supporter from day one and through meeting him I met everybody else and that was the domino effect that kind of started pretty much anybody you could name um, from our little circle of friends I met through Reemsey somehow. Well it's interesting to me that you know Robert he was one of my first guests on this podcast. Oh so that's he, really cool. He must have been doing your podcast or doing the podcast with you around that time. Yeah, this, he was really the backbone of it, I'd have to say. He was the one that um, ran a lot of uh, the OBS and um, mm -hmm. 
you know, the editing and all that stuff, so. So, yeah, the tethers are strengthened. It's funny, the more I speak with people within this quote-unquote community or this collective of weirdos and witches, uh, there's a lot of redundancies and uh, connections and interpersonal dynamics between different characters within this realm. I thought it was really cool that Sam tied the tether, with both of us starting out with a certain character, this Robert Powell. Some might remember him, especially listeners, from the Logos episode, which was early on in the podcast. But there's a humility, too, and I think one of the wonderful things about everyone I've chatted with and everyone I continue to chat with and the people that I really am endearing to are changing. There's trajectories changing within them, and nothing remains the same. Everything is different, and all of this is just being a perennial student to the form of change. I'm not any kind of magus. I'm not any kind of master of this or that. I'm really just somebody who's learned or had to learn, you know, through trial and error, because in the beginning, I really didn't have anybody to help me out at all. And um, until I started getting more involved online, and I just hope that maybe through little pieces of advice, I can share other or um, I can prevent other people from having to struggle as hard as I had to. <laughs> I love <laughs> that. Yeah. Buy books or they won't have to buy all these bullshit video courses and things. Really, the big secret is um, taking the chance on a lot right. of it. Well, uh, let's talk more about that, because this has been a common theme. Uh, for me and my friends, obviously, we talk about this a lot, are these, you know, paragons of ascension or people that are selling you ascension. You know, how we got kind of overlapped within kind of the conspiratorial community and a lot of the ufology stuff is because it's it's big right now to do the Venn diagram of, you know, claiming to be from another world with superpowers. <laughs> charging you money for ascension which i think we can all flatly say right now is complete and utter fucking bullshit yeah it's uh, totally bogus um, <laughs> you know but there's also in this youtube community and i want to talk to you about this as you've been through it a bunch you'll find it a lot too amongst our peers and and maybe you know practitioners who have been practicing for as long as we have that or even, I mean, obviously even longer, but there's there's still this tie of commerce in what they're teaching. I don't really begrudge people making money in the occult, but I don't like, I don't like it when they charge just outrageous fees for things. I think at least if you are going to charge an outrageous fee for something, it needs to at least be worth it. I don't think, I mean, this is just my opinion. I don't think there's a book or a lecture on planet earth worth $400 or even $200 (laughs) of my money. Really? Yeah. Um, It may be if you're a book collector, maybe if, you know, I'm not even talking so much about a magic practitioner, but somebody just who has a nice library or loves the um, collectivity of things, then maybe, yeah, you would like to buy it. But I just, I don't know. I don't think information should carry a price tag like that. Right. And this is, this is the trick though, too, is that, you know, uh, 
maybe it should carry a price tag if it's being taught. That's different. It, yeah. You know what I mean? And I get that hustle. It's the thing that scares me is the the one that are kind of in secret and aren't so upfront about these Ascension courses that they're doing. Oh, yeah. Or at least maybe it's not bad as long as they're not misleading. I mean... But that's I'm the all... thing. that This all could be just completely misled. And that's, that's I think that's what's worry about, worrisome for me is when you put money on it. Like, nobody fucking knows, you know? <laughs> like, it, they know it works for them, but... Uh, I think that, like, the difference between... Um, uh, okay, I won't say their names, but we both have seen a Vice article that was written recently about two people in a certain blue chicken UFO cult <laughs> that's uh, yep. overdue to be uh, picked up by the mainstream media or even alternative media online. Uh, you know, I think it's, I think the part that's so disingenuous about that is they're presenting these things as literalisms. Um, I'm a super soldier who was trained by the CIA right. 14 years old. I'm an alien with magic powers. Uh, they're presenting these things as literalisms and they're preying on the gullibility or the ignorance of people who just really want to believe or just maybe have had a rough time in life and want to have faith in anything that will make things better. And, uh, you know, they get those people like flies to honey and, um, sell them these courses and to me it's really no different than um when the pentecostal preacher or whoever it might be is preaching the end of the world and passing around the collection plate but if you give enough <laughs> yeah um but what's i guess so what i'm wondering too is like what's the difference i think between i have learned ancient secrets that I'm going to tell you, or I've been studying, you know, the dark arts my entire life. This is how you gain power from them. There, there is a line. One of them absolutely is, is a bit more ballsy and it's, you know, <laughs> creation. Uh, but the other one, I don't know. They, they just seem to kind of be this Uroboros of uh, once you get into this thread of trying to gain monetary value from, you know, these occult ideas or these occult principles, they all kind of fall into one large lump for me, you know? Yeah, I've seen that circle as well. Like it feels, I'll be 100% honest, after reading about hermetics very early on in my uh, magical studies, one of the first things that really became apparent to me the more I looked at the left-hand path and the right-hand path is a lot of their ideologies are very much the same, uh, at least as far as how magic works. I think the difference is they just use a terminology for a lot of different things. Um, but these whole ideas of macrocosms, microcosms, higher self, true will, all that stuff really kind of, you know, is, is just the same. Uh, <laughs> There's another thing that comes up a lot, I think, in this realm of occult communities and of seekers and practitioners and teachers and, God forbid, like we were discussing, gurus, where there seems to be this primordial urge 
to be a part of a bigger clan. Now, in my older age, I think I'm getting softer, and I'm understanding that there are some semiotics to the entire escapade. It's almost like wearing an unspoken flag of colors for signifying a certain ilk to strangers. But it's always concerned me in the way of uniforms and even ceremonial garb that people attune to a standard current within currents and not kind of do their own thing. I think you find some of that in every path that you look at, but at the end of the day, probably the most important thing to remember is all these people are just people. (laughs) Whether you're wearing a dashiki with a matching hat or a a Catholic priest collar or a big black shirt with a pentagram on it, they're going to go to Special K or they're going to go to Kmart and get their Fruit Loops like everybody else. And they're going to take Special K like everybody else. They're going to take Special K with freeze dried strawberries like everybody else. (laughs) They're going to take ketamine like everyone else. I think for myself, the reason I've never embraced that as as much publicly is because I think anything I've ever worn, especially for a ritual, isn't something I would wear every day in public, perhaps. Right, yeah. Um, you know, I'm not going to wear like a, a special robe or something to Walmart. <laughs> I just don't see the point. It would be self-defeating, but um, it's not even its purpose. But uh, I would definitely, you know, I, I mean, I used to not like shirts with sigils or pentagrams or things on them because whenever I saw that, uh, the majority of people I saw wearing those things didn't know anything about magic. And it kind of felt like a commercialization of my own spiritual beliefs or even um, maybe in a worst case scenario, even a um, uh, like, what's the word I'm looking for? Like an ironic presentation of my beliefs. But I guess I've recently kind of gotten more into that just for the simple fact that, you know, I realized, well, this is who I am. So I've kind of earned the right to wear this, you know, and, uh, it's kind of cool because especially if you wear things that, you know, maybe it's a Haitian voodoo veve or something that people aren't as familiar with. Most people will look at that and not even know what it is, but it could mean something to you. And um, even having it on your person might have some kind of talismanic magical effect. Yeah. It's interesting to think about. I think image, you know, I'm, I'm one of those people that have always thought, you know, that an artist represents themselves at all times. You know, it's it's the same thing that I mentioned with the T-shirts and me. It's like, that's me. I wonder, too, if this whole idea of secret names and magic and these secret robes and shit will just be obsolete because isn't the whole point to be your higher self? And if you're dressing and comfortable and who you are, then who needs a robe? That's yeah. true. Yeah. I've, never, I've always felt the same way about magical names for some reason. Because right. I remember people like Crowley and even in the Golden Dawn, they really stress the importance of magical names. And I guess maybe if you would join some type of fraternity, um, yeah, I guess, you know, you might as well make one up just for the sake of being there and being a part of that. But I don't really see the necessity for them because if I'm doing magic for myself or things that are going to help me in my life. Why do I want to assume a name that isn't mine? 
mm. just for magic. <laughs> yeah, I, I talk about how I did it once, um, and it set me on a path, but it was also just as big to retire it, was to, like, let it go. The ritual ceremony, ritual pizzazz of the pomp and circumstance of it all, if it just kind of morphs into who you are walking day by day, and then you hit a certain point where, yeah, and then all of that come, kind of becomes obsolete. Like, isn't that like the true integration of the super self, you know? <laughs> like, oh, true. <laughs> but I guess it is if you're working with, you know, spirits, and depending on what you believe, they have their requirements. Uh, it's like a respect thing. It's a reverence for different... Right and different currents you're using and stuff to me i think like the apex of this or mine is that i'm walking and doing rituals like i'm walking to work and rituals are pouring out of my pockets you know what i mean like That's a cool way to look at it though like i get to a point where it's just happening at like some hyper rate where it doesn't have to be so so disconnected from who i am day to day you know. I think that's really practical too. And, you know, I think that really is um, a more feasible way to get changes in your life. Uh, you know, whether you see that with people who maybe you've got a special oil for success or whatever it is, you might splash a little bit of it on the collar of your shirt, or maybe you um, have a high John the Conqueror route you put in your pocket or whatever it might be. Yep. Yeah, I, you know, I definitely carry different talisman every day, you know, draw different sigils on my hand. There have actually been sigils that I've left in my wallet over a year. <laughs> you know, I'd put them in there and even forget about it and then go through it much later and think, oh, shit, there's that. The fascinating confluence between identity and pragmatic praxis kind of hit its apex in this conversation. Uh, I, I will re-fortify my belief that I want the magic to spill out of me at all points, that I want to find some sort of absolution of the normal into becoming something of a walking talisman. But I guess with that said, there needs to be some communion of the higher self. So, Sam, have you ever communed? with your holy guardian angel i i would personally say so i think that purists will probably say i'm full of shit and talking out of my ass oh man they don't listen to this podcast i'll tell you that's okay and that's good we're in the the clear yeah exactly (laughs) i think i have i think that the hga could really take many different forms especially on the tradition i've never done the um the abermelon ritual i have zero desire to do the abermelon ritual i think that the whole idea of it goes against my own personal views and magic to kind of because really that was written in the whole time of solomonic grimoires where people were i'm going to elevate myself to bind this spirit and force it to do what i want to do so i have right. over it it's where like a my pet. Yeah, my approach is like totally different where it's more like I've called on you, you're here with me, I'm here with you, I'm interacting with you for this reason. And uh, so it is a separate self. Yeah, but it is like uh, distinctly 
different from say you know you at your most pure I th- perhaps yeah i think um with an hga uh you know i think that i could use different archetypes from totally different pantheons to characterize that and um just through interacting with that maybe even with a goal in my mind is enough for me to hit or to interact with my HGA. I don't look at my HGA as so much like something that's, you know, an imaginary friend saying, all right, Sam, you better brush your teeth mm. and you better go to bed at 9 PM and tomorrow we're going <laughs> to, but it's horrible. <laughs> okay. I could say whether it's, um, Obatala and Santeria, who is my crown guardian, Orisha, you could say he's my HGA, or maybe I'm in a different, uh, or from a different pantheon's point of view, something like Satanism. You could say Satan is your higher self or um, symbolic of your higher self. That could be my HGA or the same with Set from the Egyptian pantheon. But really, um, maybe... It's just like your closest paragon to whatever current you're using? I think so, yeah, because I think maybe the bigger picture is um, beyond any of those kind of archetypes, I'm really just getting more in touch with whatever it is that is me already. Mm -hmm. And um, that's kind of the beauty of it. Uh, But it's almost like, yeah, the HGA is that version of yourself within that current that you need to hit or to talk with and commune with to, you know, kind of further the, uh, the work. Right. I think so. I think that, um, at least the more in touch you are with the HD HGA, um, maybe the clearer you'll, maybe you'll be able to at least visualize your goals clearer and know what you need to do in your life mm-hmm. just for direction. Maybe that's the best word I could give it for direction. Um, to say, okay, I'm really called to this career path. I'm really called to this passion in my life or, um, well, maybe I need to start living this part of my life for me. It could be anything, um, whatever it is. I like, I like the idea though, you talking that it could be these different, you know, saints and figures and, and, uh, you know, even Egyptian gods or, or like, but it's, it's when they come to you that you, are you working in a certain current for that God to commune with you? And is it like your super self wearing the garbs of that, like, you know, paragon? I think, yeah, I think that, um, I, I would, I would never mix those traditions together. Right. Not the same time. Yeah. Yeah. Not at all. But, um, I think that, the end goal of whichever one I'm working within would be the same for the HGA. I think uh, Obatala is a really interesting one for me because hmm. um, Obatala in a weird way is neither male nor female. Like I guess he always uses male pronouns, but if you see Obatala, um, he's always, he's usually a very masculine looking figure with a white dress so I see that uh, duality immediately within myself. And I also just see um, um, really a lot of aspects of him within me. Uh, creativity. Um, he's the father of all the other Orisha. 
Uh, he's not God, but maybe he's even sort of a demiurge because God would be Oludamare, but Oludamare made Obatala and Odudwa as sort of the two polar creative forces in uh, manifesting physical reality, at least in the West African pantheon. And uh, I see that just the, the lust for knowledge and the will to create and um, maybe the embodiment of both sexes, perhaps, all rings very true within me and my personality. So when I learned more about him, uh, it made sense that I was crowned child of Obatala. And the more I continue to work with him, uh, the truer that seems to stand out to me, the more I guess I've learned to appreciate him with time. Whoa, 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 dear listeners, I apologize. Uh, as as often the case with these wonderful conversations I have with my dear friends, colleagues, luminaries, artists, thinkers, mages, what have you, we don't really get to the nitty gritty till towards the end. Well, the chat is far from over, but I implore you to take a deep listen to Sam's many currents that they're dealing and, and wheeling with. It's a brilliant idea to use a plethora of things. And I think in my other threads or tethers with this podcast, Anarchic Magic is a big step. A, a, a magic that is piecemeal of reverence and understanding and knowledge. And Sam is a wonderful, wonderful, wonderful person to talk to about this. So get ready. Roll up your sleeves. Sorry, did I drop the momentum? Yeah, who cares? Here we go. Where and how did you get crowned? Like, it um, seems like a very formative and beautiful kind of aspect to your journey. In July, it will be. It will have been uh, one year since I got uh, crowned a child of Abatala, and um, it was like a really big thing for me because I think. Uh, well, this is what happened. I've always loved voodoo. I've always practiced voodoo. And I reconnected with a very close friend from high school who I'd lost connection with for years because she had moved away and she moved back. And uh, her parents uh, practice Ifa and Santeria Lukumi. And um, she said, you know, hey, I know this is kind of this is a different tradition, but the Pantheon is basically the same. And if you come learn with us, you come, you know, meet my family and learn with us. I think it's really going to help further you along on your spiritual development. So I started really interacting with her and her family a lot more. And um, this has been a little over a year ago now. But um, after doing that quite some time, uh, they asked me if I wanted to come for this special ceremony where several people were going to get their um, Holy Guardian Orisha. And I said, of course, I'm going to go for that. And um because once you know who it is, you can continue to work with them and, you know, go further your spiritual advancement. But um, I, and I think this is kind of the cool part about it. I think that when you work with a pantheon like that, especially before you've been in, initiated into any kind of thing, everybody has their favorites. It's like me, I always loved Ilegua or um, Eshu. And uh, when I went into that room, I was convinced, oh, I'm a child of Ilegua because this, this, and this. Mm -hmm. And, um, 
you know, I think it's this way for everybody. Everybody has their favorites, but then, you know, once the reading is done and the elders decide, you know, it, sometimes it's not who you expected at all. And um, e even though I still love Elegua and still work with him quite frequently, I realize why Elegua is not my crown Arisha, why Obatala makes so much more sense. Um, and that's, that's kind of the cool ego shattering thing about it that really can allow at times for, um, for spiritual growth. To give her like a crude analogy, it's like, I always thought I was John, but I was George the entire time. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and you know, there's nothing wrong with being George because without I, yeah. that strong lead guitar, you know. Also, George is the best. He's the spiritual center. <laughs> I think we always put ourselves into the aspects of, of the different pantheons that we study and learn. I mean, and some that don't, I guess the pantheon are the creators, like, you know, and Austin Osman Spare, and we can't help but kind of feel that tether to them. But I love the idea of, and this is pretty universal, that like, it's never who you think you think you are. Right. Yeah. Totally. I think it, yeah, no, for sure. Some, especially it seems that way in magic. I think that uh, sometimes our egos can fool us. I know mine's fooled me more than once, but. <laughs> Mine's still fooling me and it probably will for a long time. Same here, actually. So what, what, what caused the, the crowning? So would that be your main current then? That's like the true kind of passionate current you have as far as any kind of old world you know trajectories in, in magic um you know i it's it's fine to mention that because even as much as i love it i don't think that it takes away from my commitment to possibly other ones as right. well so i can't say it's something i place above all others but i i still to this day continue to get a lot out of that current um, I think that it's okay to be a member of 10 different religions right. or, you know, just three different religions as long as you are, you put everything in its proper perspective. Let's say you have to put everything in its lane. Well, um, you seem to be the perfect kind of amalgam of what we talk about with anarchic magic, right? Of, you know, following with respect dutifully, like many different kind of tribes and interests but you also come with it with a background of like of knowledge of education it's not just you willy-nilly and kind of what the crass kind of you know chaos magic idea of just taking whatever works it's like no you have like deep interest and follow through with many different trajectories and what I, are some of what are some of the other ones that kind of mix in with the um I would say for sure Thalema was like what really branched me off in the magical direction um, in the beginning. I think that, uh, so basically I wanted to join this Thalemic order when I was much uh, younger and it never happened, <laughs> but I bought all the books and I tried to teach myself all the rituals and take notes and stuff like that. And um, 
even though I think that I've really expanded since then and I've looked into different currents or different pantheons of magic, uh, you know, that's kind of where I found my footing at. And, uh, you know, it's, it, it was almost like jumping on a trampoline or jumping off of a trampoline into a swimming pool might be a better <laughs> analogy, uh, diving deep. But sometimes I think that's what anybody really needs in the beginning is um, just a structured system. Like if you're going to buy books, like don't buy a hundred different books. Like, you know, don't buy a Buddhism book and a Satanist book and a this book and that book. Maybe buy like five books and they're all Satanist books or five books and they're all Wiccan books or whatever it might be that you're into. And through that kind of foundation, you'll be able to then look at other pantheons later and say, oh, that's just like what we do in here, except it's called this, or that's the same ritual as this. We just have a different way to do it or a different name. Um, I think that to answer your question, though, I think Thelema, Satanism, uh, or maybe even just Setianism, I think in some ways they're kind of interchangeable for me, even though they have different... Um, I think one is more Judeo-Christian oriented or nature oriented, and one's definitely of the Egyptian ilk, uh, voodoo. Um, I think, uh, wow, yeah, those would really be some of the main ones. Um, after reading a lot of Austin Osmond's Bear around December, though, I think that really branched me off in a cool new direction. I think that uh, since my journey began, I've always kind of looked at magic as something external in the world. I do think that some of that exists for sure, without a doubt. But now I've looked at it almost more in the flip way of an internal universe um, within my own mind uh, and my own kind of personal callings in that way. Because when you look at it from Spare's perspective, you might see magical significance and things that anybody else would see as just ordinary or mundane. And in fact, to them, it probably is meaningless. But to you, it can have a deep significance just because of the importance you place on it or in the context you view it. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. That's, that's super interesting. That switch happened, I think with you too, that, that's a thread that I'd find in, you know, and other uh, currents that you use too, maybe not so magnanimously. I mean, he is the author of, you know, it's, it's all about, <laughs> you know, <laughs> pleasure, right? It's all about the alphabet of desire and, and all of that. So I see like where that internal idea comes from. I like that um, as far as like a, uh, an analog to kind of, you know, the, the magician's way. I'm just now moving into the, you know, working with things outside of my selfish ass self. One question that I continually have and I cover this a bit with Sir Bron the Blessed in the last episode, was that of appropriation. I think in this time of fervent and abundant quote-unquote witchcraft and occultism, there's been less tie to reverence or to understanding of the cultures and currents of which many people seem to take from and adjust and as a part of this anarchic magic that i keep talking about reverence is a major part so is knowledge 
So what is it like to switch it all up, to mix in all the gods of different currents, of different pantheons, and is that okay? Um, I've been very lucky, to be honest. I think that anybody that I ever spoke to who was part of a bloodline, perhaps, or a, maybe a lineage of initiates, they always were very interested in what I had to say or encouraged me to do what I was doing. But I think that um, when I work with anything like that, uh, to me, it extends beyond just the culture. Because, see, I know that a lot of people might get offended by it, perhaps because they're looking at it in terms of stealing a culture. I'm looking at it in terms of working within a personal development. Yeah. Yeah, we're in personal development for sure. Magical development, spiritual development. Yeah, I think that's the thing too. It's, you know, when like, what we were talking about earlier, where money comes around, when you start peddling these ideas as a source of, you know, knowledge in the sense that you could could take the ways and adapt them for other things or or do that. It's pretty cut and dry, I think. And I mean, I, I understand where their frustration comes from because, you know, there might be somebody who, let's say they got initiated by somebody into voodoo or they practice with an elder in voodoo for however many years and then they left to go do their own thing and um, they write this book. And maybe they, who knows, maybe they are, they're even making up rituals in the book or, you know, whatever right. it might be acting like it's their own thing and i i think that might be where a lot of the uh cultural appropriation or um sort of the disconcern for uh how these people act might uh what it might stem from um i think it's and even then i it's not that i discourage people from doing their own rituals Mm -hmm. i think that there needs to be a reverence for where these things came from. Uh, if you're interested in this or you work within this, you have to be genuine. You can't just, you know, flip flop on it or, right. um, yeah, I think the commitment needs to at least be, be sincere or even if you're not committed a hundred percent, I think your participation needs to at least stem from a place that's sincere. Well, Sam, I want to talk about, I think the last topic I want to talk to you about, especially is about crossing the streams. I want to talk about, like, how could someone mix these different currents in a reverential way? Well, it's like, do you think it's possible? And do you think it's like, it's it's a good idea if it was done maybe with some, you know, deep concern and, and, and interest and reverence, as we've said? Um, I I think it can be done. I think that um, there are like, definitely... Will these gods work together? <laughs> I think it, I think it, it depends. Uh, if you had an altar, maybe, let's say you... Um, I, I think some of it is just kind of common sense. Like, you wouldn't put Jesus and King Paimon on the same altar, you know what I mean? Or something silly like that. Okay, I'm going to scratch that off the list. But you could put Jesus and Mary on the same altar. You could put King Paimon 
and Lucifer together on the but same. Those are also of the same ilk. Like, what about right. you know? Um, Maybe you could put Papalegba and you know, I don't Papalegba know. Papalegba might go good with Ganesh. Right. Exactly. Ganesh opens yeah. doors and Papalegba opens doors. Or um, let's see, you could put Osiris with Jesus, or you could mm-hmm. put Set with Satan, or you could put um, you could right. put maybe. Oh gosh, I mean there are. I would encourage people to experiment with what works for them within reason. So, uh, but there's always like a worrisome idea too, that like, you know, uh, Thoth has like a different ideologies and say, you know, or like uh, that working with like Santa Muerte and then also, you know, putting some Egyptian gods in there would right. kind of cross each other out or, there's different lips and stuff. It definitely is an experimentation. Right. It, maybe you could put, and I'm not telling you to do this. You would have to decide. You could even uh, divine on it or maybe do a channeling of Santa Muerte to ask mm. her what she thinks about it. But maybe you could put Santa Muerte with Anubis on an altar. Right. Well, I was also, you know, I've worked too with Hermes and Hecate with Santa Muerte. You, you know, but one was about but it's also like getting the different aspects of what we want. And I think, you know, within magic, it's sometimes you have to do magic to know what magic to do. Right. And I think sometimes it's also about invoking different gods for different aspects of the desire that you want. You know, Hermes is there to make it come quicker kind of thing. Right. Oh, that's a good point way to look at it too. Yeah. So, so my worry though I mean, it is an experiment, and the last thing, you know, anyone wants to do, and I think people do without, you know, having any idea of what they're doing, obviously, um, considering what each one means is to offend either of them by right. mixing, you know? Um, so, yeah, it's just like, a, I was wondering if you've ever tried that, like, you know, have you have you worked in, like, many different currents at once? Not like that, but I'm not going to say that people shouldn't do it or that it's a bad thing to do. I'll tell you this. Now, up until recently, now I would be open-minded to that possibility because mm. um, I think a lot of that is comes from when I first started learning magic, uh, my whole introduction to invocation was Libra Astarte by Aleister Crowley. And uh, he gives a direction there where he says... Um, he compares Osiris with Christ and he makes like an, an, or he talks about making an altar and he says, uh, if you were to invoke uh, Osiris, uh, don't have images of Christ on the altar or vice versa, although they could be considered the same. Now that's Crowley's point on it. And that's kind of like how I always viewed it for the longest time. But recently was speaking with uh, a Babalao who I know very well. He told me he pretty much does it the opposite. Um, he has an altar. He has one altar for uh, ancestors and one for everything else. And um, right. the, the everything else would mainly be Orisha, obviously, because he's a Babalao, but he also has a few Hindu deities and he has the green man and he has, um, a couple other things like that, you know, from different mm. 
mountains. So, you know, he would basically tell me, it's okay, you know, this is your spiritual altar and, you know, put all these things here because you're give, you're going to give reverence to all those spirits, basically. Right. And um, the way I guess I've viewed it... But to separate the ancestral. Right. right. Yeah, yeah. The ancestral would be like its own thing. So I guess it would be okay. Like, let's say you had an altar and you had Buddha... Hermes, Pan, and um, I don't know, King Paimon on it, you know, you could put offerings on that altar for all of them. Or when you made an offering to the altar, the offering is going to all the spirits and you're feeding this altar, you're feeding the energy of these spirits to um, just let you, just let them know you're communing with them and, uh, you know, hey, calling on you to be a presence in my life and that would be your spiritual altar and uh and I wonder if too is it like oh sorry go ahead no i was just gonna say i think a lot of people actually work that way it's just maybe my own personal hang-up i've gotten or i'm trying to get over um i i saw a really cool altar uh recently from a friend who um they had been, uh they sent this to me and they basically had it reminds me of the Austin Osmond spare thing, how I mentioned certain things that might not even seem magical to you could have a significance or might not seem magical to other people could have a significance to you. Oh, of course. They had yeah. um, a mix of everything from, they had set Andros and they had two figures from Jojo's bizarre adventure and a Buddha. <laughs> on yeah. <it> all. <laughs> And to anybody else, it might not seem like it means anything, but for them, you know, it could be a very specific type of energy that, okay, I want to call this energy or whatever this represents. I want to call on that in my life. So um, I think that could be, uh, I think that could definitely work. Um, I, I guess to me too, there's an idea of going back to kind of the absolutes. Like to me, it feels like, you know, there's an archetypical idea of, you know, what each of these kind of daemon, you know, represent these demiurges, right? And so when you kind of cross-pollinate with some of them that mean or dive within a certain kind of trajectory, you're kind of hitting that absolute part of right. it. But you also, yeah, you don't want to offend or, you know, have the wrong incense to the wrong you know <laughs> or <laughs> you know so yeah it's just tricky and i think that's i think there's something to be really like focused on there and if there's a way to like have a fun time with this kind of comparative mythology within you know different aspects of magic say like what joseph campbell did you know with mythology but using it within like um, oh, saints sure. and, and and you know lesser gods and gods and demons and all of that like it could be a brilliant way to kind of figure out some like kind of absolutist idea absolutist in the sense that absolute like not my not minor identities you know what i mean totally i think yeah. if you we're gonna go through it that way or would that uh, if you were going to go through with it that way um, a good way to do it would maybe be a white candle with a glass of water 
and yep. um, you know some kind of written prayer, something that you make up that um you know whether you want to include their names in it or not, maybe you do you could say, um, I call on the powers of this altar so and so this person that person do you think that makes it i mean is that like make it look way less potent though if you do it that kind of i mean i guess it i don't know that i don't have what the barometer I, guess I, could, I say white candle and a glass of water would be that's almost universal for most right. spirits like if you have a spirit that um takes red candles or black candles or blue candles or whatever but you're mixing all these things together on one altar uh, white can kind of be universal for anything, you know, right. it's, it's like bread, um, food offerings, like different spirits might like different things, but bread is pretty universal. You could pretty much give bread to any spirit. They'll, they'll be cool with it. But, um, divination always helps. And, uh, yeah. if you don't get the right vibe about it, then um, don't put a certain thing on your altar. You know, uh, it's it'll have to be um, for you to kind of decide, I think. Yeah. And that's what brings us back to this idea that, you know, like you feel it. You kind of know when it works and when it doesn't. Oh, totally. Totally. And I think that's like the perfect circle right there. No pun intended. <laughs> Sam. Love you. Thank you so much for I love hanging you. with me and doing this. Um, it was an honor to be here, man. Yeah, we'll have many more. This is just the beginning. Um, this is going to be really fun to listen back to. And thank you for helping me get back on track with having kind of serious and less uh, worrisome about live streaming conversations. <laughs> I'll be honest. I haven't been on a live stream or really talked to anybody about the occult since the last time we got together. Yeah. So just kind of, I was a little bit nervous. I didn't have any idea what I was going to say. So I, I'm, I'm glad that you kind of helped me get my toes back in the water. <laughs> Well, there you have it. Thank you for paying attention to this new format. This is an experiment. I, of course, adore Sam. You will see them on a multitude of different projects that we are doing, whether it be, you know, live streams, uh, We the Hallowed, what have you. I encourage you to check out Sam in the show notes. The music, the magic, ah the wonder that is Sam's shadow. Such a brilliant, brilliant, brilliant paragon. I love that word. Of, of intent. So, thank you for sticking around. I apologize for audio levels and all of that. I'm still experimenting. Obviously, I haven't tied down my new system yet with the computer that I just got. So, I'm missing uh, whatever. I'm not going to... I'm not going to explain myself. Anyways, thank you for listening. Please check out Sam's stuff. Check out pragmagic.com, wethehallow.org. Check out the YouTube because I've been focusing on the YouTube a little bit much. I know I'm too old for this shit, but here we are. I'm doing the YouTubes. And that's at youtube.com slash C slash pragmagic. Also, if you're interested in donating anything, 
or being a Patreon. I have all of that stuff below. I don't expect any money from anyone. I love doing what I'm doing and I love learning. This is like the best free education anyone could ask. And I've honestly just garnered a wealth of friends. Stay tuned for some more creative projects. Got an album in the works. Got the new We The Hallowed Audio Sigil coming in the works with people like Carl Abrahamson, Vanessa Sinclair, Derek Hunter, Niche, Michelle Embry, Outlet Press. I mean, the list goes on. The next audio sigil is going to be quite amazing. I hope you guys have a wonderful Memorial Day. I have, you know, family, or I used to, and the armed forces. So give due respect. Country might be crooked, but I think people's hope act. So with that, here's to haints and here's to haunts. And haunt on.